Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Just a heads up before we begin. This episode contains graphic references to acts of violence. Listen with care. Previously on Very Scary People, after six members of the DeFeo family were slain overnight in their home, Police investigated every lead. After the only living member of the DeFeo family led police to believe that the DeFeos might have been connected to the mob, the police looked into it. Folks in Amityville knew they were connected to the mob. But the mob leads, fascinating as they were, felt like a dead end. The police weren't any closer to solving the case. And this is when the focus of the investigation turned to Ron DeFeo Jr., the oldest and only surviving member of the DeFeo family. The night the DeFeos were murdered, police conducted a thorough search of the Ocean Avenue home. They walked up those red carpeted stairs in search of a weapon, or something, anything, that they could use as evidence. But after an extensive search, there was no smoking gun. Instead, they found Ron Jr. He was sitting outside the house, crying, inconsolable. He had just returned from Henry's bar, where he had driven and asked for help upon finding his parents and four siblings dead. Now, Ron Jr. was back home, while police combed through the house for evidence. He was visibly upset, but he was, by his own recollection, nervous that night. He didn't want to get blamed for murdering his family. He had found them dead. It didn't mean he killed them. Six people were dead. It was bad if one was dead. I don't want this going back on me. I was scared. I don't want to come to jail for this. Here's a WNBC reporter asking the Suffolk County Chief of Detectives where the police were taking Ron Jr. on November 13th, 1974. What about Ronald uh, DeFeo, the son, the surviving son? Ronald is being safeguarded by the Suffolk County Police at this time. Safeguarded. You don't safeguard a killer, do you? 
Rick Osuna wrote the book, The Night the DeFeos Died. So they got him in the car and they took him around the back to a White House, which served as the uh, homicide headquarters. He was like, what is this? What game are you guys playing? They said, shut up, come with us. Shut up, come with us. Ron Jr. must have known this wasn't a good sign. He never wanted to go with the police. He wanted to wait until his grandfather got there. He was waiting to be with family. According to Rick, Ron Jr. was sure that if he needed a lawyer, his grandfather, Michael Brigante, who owned the Buick dealership in Brooklyn, would help. But by the time his grandfather showed up, Ron Jr. was already in police custody. Rick Osuna, as you might remember, refers to Ron Jr. by his nickname, Butch. He was pretty much carried, strong-armed, down the driveway into a police vehicle. You know, what Butch told me was he had to find a way to get rid of the small-caliber handgun he was carrying. Yep. Rick says Ron Jr. was carrying a handgun that night. Obviously, he didn't want the gun to connect him to the deaths of his family members. So Rick says Ron Jr. stuffed it down the backseat cushion of the police car. How he got into a police car with a firearm on his person is another story. Different times, I guess. After securing Ron Jr. in the back of the squad car, the cops headed down to the 4th Precinct headquarters in Hopog. Taking him away, some said, was ostensibly for his own safety. The cops were worried the mob had something to do with the crime, and they wanted to protect the last living DeFeo. From HLN, this is Very Scary People, The Amityville Murders. I'm your host, Donnie Wahlberg. This is Episode 4, The Confession. It was still dark by the time they arrived at the station. The police version of events is that Butch, over the you know next 12 hours, was very cooperative. After spending up all night, he went to lie down. And during that time, the police had continued on their investigation. He lay down on the cold concrete floor of his cell and slept. Some hours later, the police came in, woke him up. And they read in his Miranda rights, and they officially told him that he was the suspect of his family's murder. Ron Jr. had fallen asleep a victim, someone to be safeguarded. He just found the bodies of six family members shot dead in his childhood home. Ron Jr. had been told he'd been brought to the police station for protection, and he woke up in a cell as suspect number one. Here's Ron Jr. I'm a suspect. When I knew the position I was in, I told him a lot of things to get it up off me. When Ron Jr. woke up, the cops started by asking him what exactly happened over the past 24 hours. Here's what Laura DiDio knows. In 1974, she was a producer for the TV station WNEW New York. She says when the police were interrogating him, Ron Jr. couldn't keep his emotions straight. He would go from saying, I loved my family. And he was very visibly emotional, crying, I'm afraid. And then he would switch to being defiant and critical. My mother was a lousy cook. So was Ron Jr. actually just confused? Was he lying to cops 
And why did he have a gun that night? At the station, Ron Jr.'s mood swings and polarized opinions of his own family painted him as unreliable. Sometimes he was putting family members down. Other times, he was beside himself, an innocent victim of an atrocious and mysterious act. In the past three episodes of this podcast, we've explored the myriad questions that dog this case. And according to the coroner and the autopsy reports, they were not drugged, which is another big mystery here. Of course, there were mysteries about that, too, and contradictions, because they're all found in a certain position laying down. Why didn't anybody really wake up or try and defend themselves? And why didn't any of the neighbors here, why were they all found face down? Nobody has ever been able to explain that. And the big question remains, who committed the crime? But what if the answer was in plain sight the entire time? Many years after his family was murdered, Ron Jr. would tell Rick Osuna what he claims happened that fateful November night in 1974. And just a quick note here. This is the story Ron Jr. told Rick Osuna years after he shared a different account of what happened on November 13, 1974 with the Suffolk County Police. We'll come back to the original story. But we're telling you the version Rick Osuna believes to be true first. Because it says a lot about what was going on with Ron Jr. back then. Here we go. Rick says Ron Jr. recalled things at the DeFeo household were not going well on November 12, 1974. There was drama between the oldest daughter, Dawn, and her parents. And things got heated. Dawn got so upset at her father because she wanted to go to Florida and live with her boyfriend. But Ron Sr. didn't want Dawn to move south with her boyfriend, William Davidge and the situation escalated. As you know by now, Ron Sr., also known as Big Ronnie, had a history of getting physical with his wife and children. This time, Dawn turned the tables on him. Rick says Ron Jr. told him she got so mad she lunged at her father with a knife. Her mom Louise had to intervene. Louise stepped in and took the knife away. So Louise was always protecting Big Ronnie. According to Rick, Ron Jr. wasn't living in Amityville at the time, but in New Jersey. That's where he was when he got a call from his mom. Come quick, Louise told him. There's trouble at home. Remember, Rick Osuna refers to Ron Jr. by his nickname, Butch. Butch agreed to come home. He drove the 90 miles, and he reached home. When he arrived at 112 Ocean Avenue, it was pure chaos. Insanity. Ron Jr. took in the scene around him. He found, as he walked through the front door, his younger brother, uh, John Matt, bleeding on the foyer. Big Ronnie had punched him in the face. John Matthew was at this time nine years old. Ron Jr. knew his father was out of his mind. His dad was abusive. Ron Jr. had experienced it firsthand. For the most part, though, Big Ronnie had left the younger kids alone. Upon encountering his youngest brother beaten up, Ron Jr. was angry, so he went upstairs to confront his dad, passing the portraits of the family on the wall. So Butch took two steps at a time, left his little brother there, and saw that his father and Don were going at it. The mother had been, you know, bloodied and punched, and Mark DeFeo's yelling outside of his room, like, do I come out, do I come out? Ron Jr. says he found his mom Louise beat up in a ripped nightgown and his sister Dawn hysterical. 
And there was his father, irate. Ron Jr. locked eyes with his dad. Big Ronnie lunged at his son, but missed him, falling to the ground hard. Ron Jr. laughed at his father, down on the floor. Don and Louise started laughing, too. Then his mom, Louise, started to tend to Big Ronnie. Butch was just shocked that here was his mother, who was bloodied and her her nightgown had been torn, and she's taking care of him like nothing had happened. After this incident, Ron Jr. says his family went about their day like nothing happened. Everything appeared to go back to normal. They all continued hanging around the house together. But it wasn't over. Far from it. Ron Jr. at dawn had unfinished business. Ron Jr. didn't return to Jersey yet. Later that night, as the story goes, he and Don huddled in the basement. And just a heads up, this is where things begin to take a really serious turn. Don was really upset, saying, we've got to kill them both because, you know, mom's too far gone as well. They thought their mom had been brainwashed by their father, that she never defended the kids while they were being beaten by their dad, that she always took Big Ronnie's side. But according to Rick, Ron Jr. didn't take his sister's threat seriously. They weren't really going to kill their parents. He's like, you know, everyone's placated now, just like a typical evening. So he told Don, gave her his car keys, said, just go, you know, blow off some steam. Just get out of the house, Ron Jr. was telling his sister. Go see a movie or something. Don did leave for a while and came back later that night. Ron Jr. stayed at the Ocean Avenue house. After she got home, Ron Jr. and Don overheard Big Ronnie talking about them. Big Ronnie was saying Don should be institutionalized and that someone should kill Ron Jr. Kill Ron Jr.? This was the cruelest threat Ron Jr. had ever heard from his father. And Big Ronnie sounded serious. Rick says at this point in the evening, the whole family was under the influence of something. And you have to understand, by this time, they were drinking, they were, they were doing some drugs, so nobody was completely sober. And at first, Butch laughed it off, but Don continued and said, they mean it this time. When Butch heard his mother start to cry, he felt that she had given in, that that was it. She was no longer going to even stop anything. Ron Jr. knew by his sister's tone that things were getting extremely dark, and his parents weren't messing around. They really were going to have her committed to a mental institution. Ron Jr. began to panic. Butch knew that something had to be done, so they came up with a plan. They would kill the parents. They would say it was a robbery. The smaller kids would be taken to Brigante's house, and they would stage it. The Brigantes, remember, were Louise's parents. The younger DeFeo siblings would be dropped off at their grandparents' house. They would be safe there while Don and Ron Jr. killed their parents. At this point, Rick says all Ron Jr. could think about was his dad, Big Ronnie, who threatened his life just hours before. So Don and Ron Jr. went upstairs to their parents' bedroom. Well, Butch couldn't fire. He pointed the gun at his sleeping father. He couldn't fire. Don had enough, took the rifle, and shot the first shot. By that time, Butch took the rifle back, and his mother had popped up. And 
the rage inside him had built to a crescendo, and he shot his mother because he blamed her. He blamed her more than the sickness that his father had because she allowed it to continue. That's Ron Jr.'s version of events as told to Rick Osuna. It was unclear what plagued Ron Jr., what moved him to want to kill his parents in cold blood. Maybe alcoholism, maybe mental illness, or pure frustration and retaliation to years of abuse. Maybe his delusions of grandeur. But Ron Jr. believed his father was tearing apart the family. He'd had enough. Rage erupted inside him, moving him to take it out on his own mother. He shot and killed her. Back to November 13th, as Ron Jr. told Rick how it all went down. Don's shot hadn't killed Big Ronnie, so the patriarch got out of his bed and lunged at both of his children. And this man was 270 pounds, hence Big Ronnie. He charged at them. And it was a collective, oh my God, he's going to kill them. And Butch fired right as he made it into the hallway. It killed his father. His father dropped to the ground in a pool of his own blood. Big Ronnie was finally dead. But something had gone terribly wrong. Again, this is all according to Rick, who interviewed Ron Jr. after the murders. By that time, of course, cowboy gun, .35 Marlin, super loud, deafening. The kids are up asking, what's going on? What's going on? Wait, what? The kids were still in the house? No one had taken the young DeFeos to their grandparents. And Don is saying, if you leave your bedrooms, I'm going to give you the beating of a lifetime. Stay in your rooms. At this point in our story, Ron Jr. says he left the Ocean Avenue house to find a friend to help him stage the crime scene so they could later say it was a robbery. He instructed Don to take Allison, Mark, and John Matthew to their grandparents' house while he was gone. But when Ron Jr. returned to the house, he realized the kids hadn't gone anywhere. He raced up to his siblings' bedrooms, but it was too late. He goes into the room, he finds Allison, shot, dead. It was a horrendous wound. The wound was a disfiguring wound. It looked like it was meant to disfigure. It went right through her face, her beautiful face. The children were supposed to be safe. Now it wasn't just Allison who had been shot. His younger brothers were dead too, killed, according to Ron Jr., by their sister Dawn. Things had definitely not gone according to plan. Butch was in a rage, and he knew that his brothers were dead, and he ran up to the stairs, confronted Dawn, and as he made it into a room, of course, he, he called her some names, like, why would you do that? Why would the kids? She was like, they would have told, or they would have gotten revenge on us. They had to go. They needed parents. We don't. He stepped on the gun in the room, and as he went to pick it up, she lunged at him. They fought over the gun. Ron Jr. pushed his sister Dawn and hit her in the head, knocking her unconscious. In a fit of rage, perhaps over the deaths of his siblings, he picked up the rifle one last time. And she was flat on the bed trying to get up, and I shot her. I thought I had shot her in the neck, but I had shot her in the head. And then when I realized what I did, you know, I said, my God, you know, I mean, it happened so fast. I never even knew what I did. But after what happened, it was like a nightmare. I'm looking at my mother and father dead. 
That's the way it went down. At least, according to Ron Jr., who shared his account of what happened on November 12th and 13th, 1974, with Rick Osuna. Ron Jr. would come back to this story and use it to try and convince the world that he didn't commit the murders alone. And for the record, Ron Jr.'s claim that his sister Don was involved was later found not credible in court. But as we mentioned earlier in this episode, Ron Jr. didn't tell police this version of the story right after being arrested. He never mentioned his sister Don's alleged role in the murders. When he was first being interrogated by detectives, Ron Jr. blamed the mob and then actually confessed to killing his family all on his own. He made it sound like a crime of passion, an impulsive act. Again, Lord DiDio. What Ronnie Jr. has said first seems to be the best and most believable, which is, it all happened so fast. Once I started, I couldn't stop. It happened so fast. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Back to November 13th, 1974. So like I said, Ron Jr. would soon confess at the hot bog station to the murder of his family. But there's a thing or two about the police in Suffolk County that I think you should know. By the time Ron Jr. came face-to-face with Suffolk County prosecutors, the DA's office had a pretty bad reputation. The homicide squad was investigated for dirty tactics, like beatings of suspects, forced confessions, and even in some cases, allegations of torture. Rick Osuna says a judge in Suffolk County even wrote the governor of New York about it to complain. Suffolk County, it got so bad, long story short, The state commission of investigation finally came in 
did a multi-year investigation of the DA's office and the homicide squad in the 80s. And several detectives, they were forced to resign, transfer, or retire. This is again, according to Rick Osuna. I didn't believe it until I did my own investigation of Suffolk County. A judge later found, according to Rick, that detectives were lying under oath in some cases and lying about evidence. In my mind, there's no doubt that Butch wasn't tortured. He was definitely tortured by the Suffolk County police. Ron Jr. told Rick Osuna as much, that he was beaten and tortured by the cops. Under the four spotlight of police officials, Ron Jr. may very well have felt compelled to confess. And they pretty much, for the next, you know, 12 plus hours, they beat him, they tortured him, they wanted him to write a confession, and the beatings did not stop. What transpired was, you know, over that long evening, several detectives took a turn on Butch. And finally, the key detectives were able to, um, to get Butch to cooperate more. He didn't want to be beaten I- I- any further. You should know, though, this came to light in 1997, when a district judge in New York wrote in a court opinion that, quote, no police officer used or threatened the use of physical force upon Ron Jr. at any time during his interrogation, unquote. Back to 1974. Suffolk County detectives were leading the questioning of Ron Jr. at the station that day, 48 hours after Ron Jr. allegedly found his family dead. At first, the detectives were approachable in their interrogation techniques. Lord DiDio said they were almost soothing. Well, what happened? We, we want to protect you. We want, you know, we want to help you. What happened? The questioning went on for some time. And finally, Ronnie did break down and confess that he had killed the mother and the father. But it wasn't just his father and mother whom Ron Jr. admitted to killing that night. And they said, well, what about the rest? What happened? Why, why kill your four siblings? And he described how he stood there and he watched his little brother die. He, he watched the leg twitching. And that just makes your blood run cold. Ron Jr. then went on to spare no detail in laying out the events of that evening. He said that after he killed his family, he took a pillowcase from inside the house. Put his bloodied clothes in there. He got into his car and drove from Amityville to Brooklyn. Threw away his bloodied clothes into a sewer. And the rifle used to murder his family? He threw that into the canal. That was it in a nutshell. Ron Jr. told detectives that he killed his family members, solo. It was a far cry from the story Ron Jr. would later insist to be true. The one we told you earlier, that Rick Osuna believes, reflects the true chain of events that night, wherein Ron Jr. and his sister, Dawn, committed the murders together. Ron Jr.'s original confession, followed by the subsequent confession decades later, makes the DeFeo mass murder that much harder to untangle today. I think the truest explanation is always, and the best, most reliable explanation in any crime, is what you get right immediately after the commission of the crime. Makes a lot of sense. But if we're going to believe Ron Jr. was truthful that night when he first confessed to the murders, we also need to consider the source. 
We need to understand what was going on in his mind. You don't just exterminate your family on a whim like that. The murders were brutal and unbearably violent. So what was the motive then? A jury would go on to decide Ron DeFeo Jr.'s fate based on his original confession. But first, detectives began to look at Ron Jr. more closely, analyzing all the factors and possible scenarios that could lead to him killing his family. Journalists like Laura DiDio also started conducting serious investigative research into Ron Jr. He had access to an allowance of several hundred dollars a week. He had a car. He had a boat. He flashed the money around, you know, to get girls, make friends. Marvin Scott was a television reporter in New York on the story. So much had happened in their lives that he was, Ron DeFeo was a young man of privilege, uh, but troubled. Uh, His parents lavished him with gifts. They took him to a psychiatrist in hopes of calming him down. That didn't work. So they gave him more money. They bought him a $14,000 speedboat. But that didn't settle Ron. He was an angry young man. Ron Jr. may have come from privilege. But like we've talked about in previous episodes, Ron Jr. suffered from some pretty serious substance abuse issues. As a teenager, he used speed and amphetamine to lose weight. At 17, he was into drugs, LSD, heroin, um, a fifth of scotch every day. He was expelled from school. By the time he was in his early 20s, Ron Jr. had gotten into a lot of trouble with drugs and alcohol. His behavior was not new. And of course, the other issue is that Butch, Ronnie DeFeo Jr., was not the most stable of individuals. He had, since the time he was 13, he attacked one of his grandparents. He had dropped out of high school. He was known as sort of a troublemaker around the town, did a lot of drugs, everything from marijuana to heroin, drinking a lot. Which begs the question, was he high the night he allegedly murdered his family? The drugs and alcohol colored Ron Jr.'s entire world. You might argue, they make him an untrustworthy suspect. Well, the day before the murders, uh, I was doing my regular, I always, uh, every day I I got high, I used heroin. I was using a lot of heroin back then. I was drinking too uh, excessively, scotch on the rocks. Do his white label it was, you know. Ron Jr. says the night of the murders, he was simply not present. I was really, uh, really, really out of it, mentally out of it. Remember Dr. Ziv Cohen? He's a psychiatrist who studied this case. Dr. Cohen believes the drugs were a coping mechanism for Ron Jr. He's trying to numb himself from his emotional pain, but he's also trying to numb himself from his ongoing circumstances because he still was in a family where there was an abusive father. And I think it is significant that DeFeo, that his drugs of choice are not stimulants. He's not into cocaine. His drugs of choice are very soothing, depressive drugs like heroin and alcohol. Dr. Cohen believes Ron Jr. was abusing substances to deal with the abuse leveled at him by his father, who we've learned in the last few episodes could be very violent toward his wife and his kids. As a result of this abuse, Ron Jr. may have developed complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. 
Complex PTSD is the result of repetitive trauma, usually from a young age. And that kind of PTSD is not from one discrete event. In a sense, the PTSD gets baked into the personality of the patient, or in this case, the defendant, the criminal defendant. And when you have that much trauma baked into your personality, you're going to have a person who is prone to all kinds of problems. Dr. Cohen believes Ron Jr. may have endured another kind of trauma, too. Physical trauma to the head. So the other thing with DeFeo is that I think, you know, he may very well have had some brain damage, and it doesn't have to be severe brain damage, you know, the kind of brain damage that would be obviously apparent when you're talking to him. We're talking about a developing brain in a young child, and that brain is receiving enormous trauma. Essentially, that brain is a punching bag. Kind of like what happens to a football player's brain when he's tackled too many times on the field and gets a concussion. If Ron Jr. did get this kind of brain damage at a young age, it might explain why his story changed so dramatically over time. Here's Ron Jr. talking about fighting with Don the night he killed his parents. I grabbed the rifle and uh, I took the rifle away from him and uh, we got into a wrestling match. I was pretty hyped up and I picked her up and I threw it down she got back up. Then I, she got back up, and I picked her up now, and I grabbed her, and I threw her. And when I threw her, she landed on the bed. When she landed on the bed, I grabbed the rifle off the floor. Dr. Cohen says PTSD can completely dull someone's emotions. It could make them antisocial. It's possible Ron Jr.'s entire development was hindered by his PTSD. Also, it can make you emotionally callous. Okay, so if you have that kind of brain damage, it's not going to help you be an empathic person. Look no further than the media interviews Ron Jr.'s given since the murders took place, says Dr. Cohen. In them, he's sometimes distant, completely removed from the emotional toll most of us would take on after losing family to a tragic event. At times he's even smiling or seems to find it funny, and he also is so preoccupied with the justification for the killings. He sometimes expresses regret that it happened, but he doesn't express remorse. So that level of callousness really points to psychopathy. Here's Ron Jr. again. It was a tragedy. I lost everything my whole family. Dr. Cohen's theory makes sense to Rick Osuna. If Big Ronnie hadn't been so violent, the DeFeo family might be alive today. Big Ronnie was an abusive husband, and it got worse and worse. Let's be frank, he he was a very sick individual. If if it wasn't for this sickness, the DeFeo murders would never have happened. He drove the family to the ultimate conclusion. He led them to their deaths. Ron Jr., whom, remember, Rick calls Butch, allegedly bore the brunt of the abuse to protect his younger siblings. It seemed to be that there was, coming to a head, the relationship between Butch DeFeo and his father, one way or the other. And you have to understand also that Butch DeFeo was very obedient to his father. He would get beaten up. He would take the beatings. Most of the time, he'd take them so it would spare his siblings, Don and Allison and John and and Mark. But the neighbors knew, even just from Big Ronnie brandishing a gun, that uh, he was very capable of violence. Ron Jr.'s youngest sister, Allison, especially had a hard time with her parents' behavior. 
She didn't often bring friends over to the house because she would say that, you know, her father and mother acted like animals and maniacs. One time, when Ron Jr. was about 22 years old, things did come to a head. The relationship had been troubled and violent between Ron Jr. and his father for a while. The two frequently squabbled, and they sometimes fought with their fists. But one day got more intense than usual. This is Marvin Scott. At one point during a fight, he pulled a 12-gauge shotgun out and pointed it at his father's face and pulled the trigger. The rifle malfunctioned. Both men had access to weapons. Ron Jr. had his own rifles, and Big Ronnie owned guns too. Evidently, Big Ronnie was an avid hunter. My theory is that, that Ronnie and his father had a terrible, terrible argument and fight. I think it was a, a, a reaction to that and the drugs. You cannot take those kind of drugs. Ron Jr. spoken out about the abuse he endured at the hands of his father. He was a violent man. I got beat up since the day I was born. I mean, I know they told me he took me out of a high chair and he threw me because I took a bowl of spaghetti and poured it over my head. I didn't want their love. I didn't want anything to do with them. How much abuse did you think I was going to take? The months leading up to November 13th, 1974, it seemed Ron Jr. was pushed closer and closer to his limit. He was straddling the edge, and it became a matter of survival. Here's Dr. Cohen again. Uh, In terms of his thoughts and feelings leading up to the murders, Ronnie DeFeo has said that there was an argument between him and his father and that his father uh, broke a pool stick on his head. And he also says that his mother was there and that she was egging the father on and and she was shouting, do it again. Um, And that at that moment, in his mind, that was the last straw and he knew he had to kill his father. If stories like this are to be believed, Louise DeFeo was also no angel towards her son, Ron Jr. In Ronnie DeFeo's logic, and he has expressed this, what do you do with a tyrant? Well, you eliminate the tyrant. Ron Jr. didn't just eliminate the tyrant. He eliminated his kingdom. And without any member of that kingdom left, a whole slew of questions remained. Questions that would be at the heart of Ron Jr.'s criminal trial. And what a trial it was. On November 16, 1974, Ron Jr. arrived at his arraignment at the first district court in Hopog, Long Island. He wore blue overalls, which was at the time standard prison garb. As his standard practice in a multiple murder case, he was arraigned in only one of the killings, that of his 12-year-old brother Mark. The court agreed to let a physician treat DeFeo for injuries to his face, but it refused to allow a psychiatric examination for him. Here's Rick Osuna again. During his arraignment, they did a medical exam and found bruising throughout his body. And you have to understand that, you know, granted, what the DA tried to show at trial was that that bruising was from his father. Ron Jr.'s lawyer for the arraignment was Leonard Lenny Simons. Lenny, you asked the court to have a physician examine your client for injuries. Would you explain that? Yes. The uh, defendant appears to have uh, sustained an injury under his left eye uh, to his lips and uh, 
various other parts of the body which were not visible to me. Therefore, on that basis, uh, the defendant had requested this morning that I ask the court to order an immediate physical examination, which the court has uh, ordered and has granted. How do you think he was hurt? I have no idea. I don't care to comment on that at this time. Do you think it's possible the police might have beaten a confession out of him? I don't know what's possible. I'll have to talk uh, to the defendant uh, at a future time and uh, ascertain what the background is. At the arraignment, 23-year-old Ron DeFeo Jr. was charged with second-degree murder and taken to a county jail in Riverhead to await his trial. Ron Jr. would soon have to face his own demons. Police in Suffolk County, New York, have charged 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. with the execution-style murders of his parents, two brothers, and two sisters. The bodies were discovered Wednesday night at the family home in Amityville, Long Island. The case is expected to go to the grand jury on Monday. At that time, the district attorney will enter evidence in all six murders. Would a jury find Ron Jr. guilty, or would they set him free? It was surreal because he looked just like any other person. You know, he he didn't look like this mass murderer. And, you know, I took the oath that I wasn't biased either way, and I wasn't. And I just said, let me listen and see what the story is. And assuming he did do it, was Ron Jr. possessed by something outside of himself that made him a killer? Or were his actions deliberate, premeditated? It also came down to the fact that Ronnie after he committed the murders, very coolly took a shower, got out of his bloody clothes, calmly went back into the bedrooms to retrieve the spent shell casings from the rifle. So he had his wits about him. That's next time on Very Scary People. Very Scary People, The Amityville Murders, is hosted by me, Donnie Wahlberg. It's a production of HLN, in collaboration with Neon Hum Media and is based on an original series created by CNN executive producer Nancy Duffy. At CNN, our senior producer is Sabina Ryman. Our producer is Allison O'Brien and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Alexander McCall leads audience strategy for our show and Jameis Andrist designed our artwork. From Neon Hum Media, our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Kate Mishkin is our producer, and our associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Navani Otero. Our editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Sam Baer and Josh Harn are our mix engineers. Theme and original music composed by Asha Ivanovich. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Special thanks to Tara Lawrence, Michael Reyes, Courtney Coop, Tamika balance Kalasny. Ashley Lusk, Robert Mathers, Christian Duchateau, Lisa Namoro, and John Dianora. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.